This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap, a time when we take you behind the scenes of the week's big state and local stories. A project 30 years in the making was approved. The city council gave its stamp of approval to funding a plan to extend the red line from 95th Street all the way south to 130th. The drama continued between two mayoral candidates. The mayoral campaigns of both Willie Wilson and Jay Maul Green traded barbs at today's ballot challenge hearings. And a controversial high school could be coming to the south side. A proposed near south side high school is getting some new funding. City Council's Finance Committee approved a proposal dedicating $8 million in city money to allow CPS to buy property for the school. Joining us to help make sense of the week's news is Tina Svondelis, chief political reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Jacoby Cochran, host of CityCast Chicago, a daily podcast and newsletter about all things Chicago. And Mick Dumkey, reporter for ProPublica. Well, it's a wrap. No, the recap's not over. I'm talking about city council holding its last meeting of the year. And they covered a lot of ground this week, so let's dig a little deeper into what they did. First, Chicago's West Side 12th Ward has a new alder person. So, Tina, tell us about Annabelle Abarca. Uh, Annabelle Abarca was the chief of staff to Alderman Cardenas, um, I believe between 2015 and 2019. So not the most current chief of staff, but this is a person that people went to to get things done. Um, you know, he he is like a chatty person. There's there's a part of being a city council person, an alder person, where you have to do the show. And she was the behind the scenes. Let's get things done. Um, so she's pretty well respected. Mm-hmm. I believe there were three others that were in contention for this and she was chosen. Um, he is going to the Cook County Board of Review. So this is a well-respected behind-the-scenes staffer, so she'll get a chance to see um, if she can, if she wants to do this. Yeah. And um, she'll be up for, this is until May, and then, you know, if she wins, she would get a four-year term. Yeah, do you think that this gives her a leg up, though, in, in, in the February race? I do. I think it's probably frustrating for people when this happens, though, because you, the people are not really selecting the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the fourth person that the mayor has chosen, which is is a lot. That's a lot. Um, it's been seasonal. The... It's been yeah. one every single season. Right. Coley in the spring, Monique Scott in the summer. <laughs> oh, you Timmy mean like Newton actual in seasons. the fall? Yeah. And yeah. now Annabelle Abarca in the winter. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, Mick. Right. It, it seems like Mayor Lightfoot is trying to leave her mark on the council. What do you think? Well, sure. Every mayor wants to do this, um, and none of the names are were surprises. They were all considered the front runner from the beginning. Even though uh, this mayor, like the mayors before her, um, ostensibly has some sort of process for selecting appointees, uh, replacements for aldermen who step away. But um, just seems like over and over again, it's the people that we all expected. Yeah. Imagine mm-hmm. that. 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's steer the city council conversation over to public transit. Uh, plan to extend the red line, got the green light this week. Let's hear what Mayor Lightfoot had to say, followed by Ninth Ward Alderman Anthony Beal, who represents the far south side neighborhood of Roseland. I just want to say congratulations to the far south side. It's a long, long, long time coming. So this is another opportunity for everybody to right the wrong, to turn the ship around and put it in the right direction to make sure our community gets their fair share. So give us the details here, Tina. Sure. This is a huge deal. This is how many mayors have talked about doing this. So this is a big win for the mayor. But, you know, we'll see when this actually happens, if people will actually thank her for it. Um, But it is a big deal. Um, They will be. It's a TIF district they're creating to try to fund a portion of this. It's only 26 percent, which is uh, so much money. Nine hundred fifty nine million dollars is only 26 percent of funding for this program. Wow. Or to extend the red line. Um, It's essential. People need to get downtown. It's for, you know, there's so many reasons why this should have happened earlier. And there's so many political games that happen in between. Um, but it looks like this is happening, and they do still need so much federal funding, as I said. I believe it's uh, $3.6 billion. Yeah. Um, but well, they the, believe the, that they'll get it. And the council risked um, losing a massive amount of federal funding, right, if they hadn't uh, approved this by the end of 2022. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, there was a timeline for it. So they needed to get this done. Uh, but most importantly, it's it would be four new stations, uh, 103rd Street, 111th Street, and Eggleston Avenue, Michigan Avenue, near 116th and 130th Street. So you've never seen the train go down that far. It's all buses, all slushing around. Um, and so it's going to be, it's going to make a huge difference. Well, I mean, Jacoby, you're a longtime Southsider. Mm-hmm. How transformative will this extension be? As, as Tina said, it's a huge deal. Yeah, I think it's important for access. I mean, I grew up somewhere off of the 87th, uh, stopped my entire life anywhere between like Sangamon and, uh, and Stony Island. And people for even beyond my time here have been talking about extending this. So the idea of like congratulations to the far south side, I mean, you know, for 50 years, you've like dangled this carrot in front of generations of people as these communities have seen like rapid Mm -hmm. disinvestment. And so putting the train here needs to be a first step to revitalizing the communities that will live off of this red line. So, uh, again, a win for the mayor. We got to call it uh, what it is, you know, to to be the person uh, responsible for it, kind of getting this part through. Uh, is huge. But, you know, February around the corner and this is going to be a a long process. So you might not be able to see it through. So let's not, you know, go cutting ribbons just yet. Well, that said, Tina, I mean, does the mayor's red line plan face pushback? Uh, There well, Anthony Beal, there were some alder people, alder men, women who said no, who said no, who said Alderman Pat Dahl said, why are we taking this money from one area to fund another? And there was criticism over how we funded the north side revitalization for the CTA. So, yeah, there there's a lot of dissent in there. But I think ultimately people will see the value of all these people being able to get on a train. Yeah, they think um, they think, you know, the opposition wasn't about the idea of extending the red line, which appears to have universal support, the concept. But of course, the issue is always where is the money going to come from? Right. And you mentioned the federal funds, um, you know, the federal uh, deal didn't require the city council to approve a TIF, new TIF district, but the city doesn't seem to have any other way or ideas for, for coming up with that money. And it's kind of weird because it's going to basically, uh, the TIF district isn't anywhere near the area that would get the construction. So um, that's why, you know, Alderperson Dowell was uh, opposed to it. She said, 
she represents much of the area. I think it's from Madison down to about uh, 39th Street, uh-huh. uh, where the TIF district would one run. She represents much of that area and basically says, we need the tax money. We need investment in our neighborhood. And so it doesn't seem fair to take it from here and, and move it somewhere else. Well, before we move on, Tina, any idea when this massive project would well, actually be done? Years. Yeah. <laughs> like you're not going <laughs> to shovels see in the ground week. in like 2025, I think. No, no, no. And I mean, federal funding is a slow process as well. True. But yeah. this is an assurance that we should be getting it, which is a good sign. All right. Well, on to the proposed casino for Chicago's River West neighborhood. And I'm looking at you, Mick. It's now another step closer to reality after the uh, city council zoning committee approved this plan. So give us an update on this casino plan. Yeah, so the casino, uh, the proposed casino by Bally's would go in um, at what used to be the Tribune's uh, very pretentiously named Freedom Center, uh, essentially their printing plant right over on the Chicago River, just northwest of downtown. Um, and the latest thing is uh, was an approval for the zoning. Uh, the last step, I believe, the big step is uh, that's left is to get a license from the state, from the Illinois Gaming Board. Um, right, because it's not quite a done deal. Until so it's not quite a done deal yet. Done. And and you know what's interesting about this is this this whole process has been really um, uh, sped up. It's it's you know from the beginning, uh, even some people in the city council who are in favor of the idea of a casino, um, people who are even in favor of this location, have been concerned about the process. Uh, parts of the evaluation that. Um, you know, the mayor had done were basically done in secret. Uh, we still don't know a whole lot about why this particular uh, proposal was chosen. Some of the details, uh, the site have, has been controversial, um, but it basically got momentum after Alderman Walter Burnett, who's the uh, whose ward, 27th ward, includes the specific site has uh, come out in favor of it. And most recently saying that, you know, he got some assurances about uh, hiring for uh, people of color. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines on the weekly news recap with Tina Svondelis of the Chicago Sun-Times, Mick Dumke of ProPublica, and Jacoby Cochran of CityCast Chicago. So sticking with City Council, gang, uh, Southside High School got aldermanic approval for an additional $8 million in TIF funds there's quite a bit of controversy surrounding the school, though, isn't there, Mick? Yeah, this is really a fascinating story that touches um, on a lot of different issues. Um, you know, the supporters of this proposal for this new high school um, argue, and that, you know, the aforementioned Alderwoman Dowell, um, being one of the, the leading proponents of it, says uh, this is really going to be a great thing for the near south side. Um, it's uh, projected to have a very diverse student body. Um, But the critics have said from the beginning, you know, really this is being built for a specific community. That's the growing South Loop neighborhood, which is predominantly white. And um, it initially had some funding from the state that was uh, engineered by Representative Teresa Ma from Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And uh, she presented the, you know, wanted the funding for a high school that will serve her community. Um, But now she has said she's going to put a hold on this money because she doesn't like the site, which happens to be on land where uh, Chicago Housing Authority's Icky's Homes once stood and where the CHA has been, uh, as in most of its other sites, way behind in promised housing construction. Um, so this 
managed to excite a lot of different people and also really yeah. irk a lot of different people at the same time. Well, anyone here surprised that the uh, the alderman approved funding for this school, given the criticism? No. I think the process right now in our city, whether you look at <clears throat> South Shore and the Obama Presidential Center, whether you look at the NASCAR deal that will be hitting the streets next summer, if you look at Bally's or even the high school, the Alder people, the mayor, they want to put their name on development. They want to put their name on supposedly, you know, making historical change, extending the red line, finally bringing a high school to the neighborhood. But each time it seems to come at the cost of community engagement. Transparency in this like rushed process is um, I think ultimately just going to leave a sour taste in people's mouth. And the people who are voting for this may not, you know, gain the support from their, for their community to be here to see some of these things through. Well, this leads us right into our next story. This is one that you just published today, Mick, in ProPublica. It's involving the Chicago Housing Authority and a major promise that it made around a public housing makeover. Talk about that. That's right. Uh, 22 years ago in 2000, the year 2000, the CHA officially launched what it called the plan for transformation. Most people who've been um, in Chicago for some time know what happened afterward. Uh, The CHA demolished uh, tens of thousands of units of housing around the city um, and promised to uh, rebuild or rehab 25,000 units to, to replace that old, what they described as old decrepit public housing with mixed income communities Um, that consisted of 25,000 new and rehabbed units. Um, What I found in this this story we just published this morning was that very quietly, uh, the CHA told the federal government earlier this year that it's done with the 25,000 units. And when I mentioned that to a number of people, uh, office holders, uh, housing advocates, CHA residents, the response literally was the same for most people. Well, where are the units? Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that is to the CHA's credit. They have built a a number of units and they have, in some cases, sprinkled them in areas around the city so they're not as segregated as they were before. But uh, what my story is about is really how they've padded these numbers and they've kind of thrown apples and oranges together in the same basket and really um, remain very far behind uh, not just their promises, but legal commitments Uh, to rebuild housing at a lot of their former sites. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, let's uh, finish up our our city council roundup, Jacoby. A a new ordinance was approved to make Chicago's bike lanes safer. Mm -hmm. What's this about? It was introduced by Alderman Andre Vasquez in the 40th Ward that covers parts of Lincoln Square and Edgewater. And essentially, it takes the $150 fines and ups it to $250 fines for blocking the bike lanes, even if a collision doesn't happen. Um, It gives more city departments the ability to initiate a tow, uh, as well as allowing the Chicago Department of Transportation to revoke the service permit. And for me, when I hear about increased fines, I appreciate the initiative. We just had some some cycling advocates, pedestrian advocates on the show from Better Street Chicago. Okay, And they explain that, you know, anything at the end of the day that is dictated by a fine ultimately becomes a law about convenience because two hundred and fifty dollars to us. Is, is something completely different from other people. Yeah. And the, the culture that we have in our city right now around pedestrians and cyclists is that they come last, right? Yeah. We had you all's um, colleague here at WBEZ, Taylor Vay, 
Taylor Faye Nazon on our show earlier today, and she talked about cycling through her neighborhood and somebody just openly or, you know, just opening the door callously and then telling her, watch where you're going. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, what those advocates were essentially saying is we have to go beyond punitive fines. We have to start really imagining what this city can look like if we take bike safety seriously. So when we're thinking about these major development projects, you know, Matt Martin in the 47th, you know, is proposing that we have to build into these new developments, increased bike safety. We got 280 miles of bike lanes across Chicago, and I think 40 miles are protected by curbs wow. and some type of plastic barrier. Uh, and we have to have a comprehensive plan enough. across wars. You know, Bike safety from one community to the next changes drastically. So this can't be alder person to alder person. It has to be yeah. uh, city and statewide. And we can only hope that these stiffer penalties do serve as a reminder to drivers to just be aware there mm-hmm. are bicyclists on the road. And I say that as a driver, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so shout out to the folks on YouTube watching us right now. Dale Shytown said the red line extension is great news. Also, another comment from D Farm who says, uh, please talk about the NASCAR deal again. Uh, the reported terms of the deal are horrible for the city. Jacoby, did you talk about this on CityCast too? Yeah, this was another thing that uh, Taylor brought up on the show earlier. And it's that, you know, people still have concerns that, you know, the fees that NASCAR are paying seem relatively low compared to other things that will be uh, in downtown around this time, like Lollapalooza. We still don't have a, a complete understanding of who's on the hook for security and, and what cleanup will look like after And, you know, again, this was another deal that seemed to kind of, at least for us, pop up out of nowhere and seemed to quickly go from an idea to being finalized. And, you know, three years with an option for for two more, you know, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Right. My my brother plays need for speed like in the most recent game is kind of based off Chicago's downtown. And it looks cool to see Fast and the Furious moving through oh, sure. Columbus Drive. But like, <laughs> you know, as uh, as my amazing lead producer, Carrie Shepard, said this morning, we don't live in a video game. We don't live in theory. And so, again, yeah. when you're doing something like this, really investigating what the community needs and wants is important because I'm going to be real, you know, at least while I live in Chicago, I ain't seen a lot of people capping for NASCAR. So, you know, where did that momentum really come from? Well, and Jacoby, I think you touch on something else here, which is just the terms of the deal and where they came from. We see this over and over again with other deals that have nothing to do with NASCAR. Uh, The CHA, um, obviously one of my favorite topics, you know, getting ready to lease long-term lease of land on the near west side to the Chicago Fire soccer team. How did they come up with the the proposals for that? The casino deal. You know, do these numbers come out of thin air? You know, what is the process for determining, making sure that the public is getting a fair value when they do enter into these kind of deals? Well, you think about the DNC, too, which we're still in consideration, like, those are terms that we don't know either. What are we getting? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll know after it's over. That's right. Which exactly. is how it works. And our friend exactly. D Farm on YouTube says, but who can afford tickets? What, 280 plus dollars, then like 460 for reserve seats? Wild. Like, yeah. I won't be there. All right, moving along. We've been hearing a lot of national coverage about the fall of SBF. That's crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, Chicago has its own ties to the crypto collapse. So let's start with mayoral candidate Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia. Tina, what's his connection to all of this? Okay, so as you know, Bankman Freed um, is accused. He's charged in, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, and he's also charged by regulators of wire fraud, uh, misusing money from this cryptocurrency thing to like funnel it into his 
into a hedge fund. Arrested in Bahamas. He's get, there's going to be a movie for sure. Like, we need to see this. <laughs> uh, but basically what we're seeing is a trickling down of where did he use this money. Um, and he has he had contributed to different campaigns. Um, so there's a $200,000 independent expenditure committee um, contribution that benefited Chewy Garcia. Uh, earlier this year, prior to the um, general election, I see. so that is the question um, with independent exp- expenditure committees. There's so many things that we need to learn of the process of how people are able to do this. Um, but basically, um, he also gave Chuy Garcia an individual contribution, um, and he has returned that. That's how it goes, especially in Chicago. If you have ties to something <laughs> shady, mm-hmm. you give the money away. So he already did that. But there's more questions about why did this guy choose to support Chuy? in the primary when he was running unopposed. Very interesting. So there, there's all these, there's a million stories about this, but it's very interesting to see where the money went, why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some journalism organizations like in this. So it's very interesting to see everyone will be following this money and his intentions, but this guy seems to be in big trouble. Well, Mick and Jacoby, how harmful is this to, to Garcia's mayoral bid? Uh, you know... I think a lot of people have... <laughs> it's Chicago. Right. By the time you get to the end of the coverage, people are saying, oh, it feels like the, the Chicago way in some respects. And I think he'll probably be able to separate him because if we, you know, if we start looking at some of the other front runners, you know, um, you know, donors, like, you know, Mick just pointed out earlier, that that pushing through of the soccer training facility, you know, the, the billionaire owner has donated to Lightfoot's campaigns at mm-hmm. some point um, throughout her, her tenure. And so is she going to have to, you know... Uh, you know, live that contribution down. And if we start going through other people's, you know, um, you know, financial records, we might not find things we like. So I think eventually people will forget about it. There are, what, 11 candidates, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to stick. It's also so For hard now. to explain <laughs> cryptocurrency. Like, try to explain that to, like, your mom. And she's like, what are you talking about? I mean, about? I still don't get it. Yeah. Uh, that's why you guys are here. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, there's a new poll, though, Tina, that's showing Congressman Garcia actually leading in right. the mayoral race, right? What? Yes, it's a poll commissioned by Local 150, so you have to take it with a grain of salt, but it is good when I when it's reported where you say where it came from. Um, I think that's essential. Um, so clearly they have some say in this. But uh, he is up by seven points in this poll, um, and they also showed some favorable numbers if he were to be in a runoff with Lori Lightfoot. Uh, their people say this was taken the day that he announced his candidacy with all these glowing stories. Um, so they're kind of downplaying it. They're saying it's early. They're also saying, hey, remember Lori Lightfoot had like no, no support in the last like the last polls before she won. I remember talking to her the Sunday before the election and she was very casual and jokey telling me about her favorite Clash song. Like you would never, you really? would never know that <laughs> that's what would happen. So I think, you know, that it's very early and you can't totally uh, bank on these numbers. Yeah. And um, the congressman was not at Tuesday's Northwest Side mayoral debate as well. Did his uh, crypto campaign donation, you think, have anything to do with his decision to not attend? I think she's in a position when you're an incumbent to say, hey, I'm busy, I'm I'm running city council meetings, I'm doing things. Yeah, because so you're talking about Mayor Lightfoot Mayor also Lightfoot, wasn't yes. there. Yes, so they Mayor both Lightfoot. weren't there, yes. to be fair. So they're kind of acting like the front runners. Like, do we, they're picking and choosing. What do we have to do? What do you think, Mick? Do you think we're going to hear a lot more about this crypto drama leading up to February? I doubt it, unless a lot more unfolds tied to it. If If there's more money, if something comes out where, you know, there was some sort of more clear pay-to-play arrangement or, or the appearance of one, maybe it could get a little legs. But I agree with Jacoby. I think there's so many other issues people are worked up about. Um, 
you know, that, that forum you're just talking about, it sounds like crime was the biggest issue on, on candidates' minds for sure. And, and that's what I hear from a lot of voters, crime, uh, you know, economic development, um, some of the issues I already talked about, you know, traffic safety. I think it's going to be a lot more, a lot more things that uh, really people are dealing with day to day. Um, and usually campaign contributions is way down the list unless there's something really onerous about it or, yeah. or ugly about it. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines on the sh- on the weekly news recap with Tina Svondelis of the Chicago Sun-Times, McDumkey of ProPublica, and Jacoby Cochran of the CityCast Chicago podcast. All right, so this feud between mayoral candidates Jamal Green and Willie Wilson, this continues with Green now calling for a federal investigation into Wilson's consultant, who's former state senator Ricky Hendon, who Green alleges tried to bribe one of his campaign aides. There needs to be a federal investigation into Ricky Hendon and, and Willie Wilson, especially knowing that Willie Wilson is not going to fire him, and Willie Wilson has paid him almost a half a million dollars in the last four years alone. A half a million almost. We have the records. And so this is his henchman that he uses to buy people off, and we're exposing it. What's the latest on this story, Tina? Henchman. Strong words. Strong. (laughs) So, you know, there is a process to get on the ballot. You have to get a required number of signatures, 12,500. This is a normal part of the process. Everyone can do this. People can challenge it. You can hire a lawyer. Um, so this is just how the system works, but it does seem to be like there are some grudges here, as you just heard. Um, so Willie Wilson's ally, Ricky Hendon, who is a former state senator, so he helped to get uh, Jamal off the ballot uh, the last time he ran. And so here we go. He has the right to do this as well. He's a right to accuse and to go through the process and to see if the signatures are valid. But he is accusing him of more than that. He seems he wants to have a federal investigation. Um, it's, I'm not sure if this will happen. I don't know if this is beneficial for him, but it is a good kind of way for voters to understand how this stuff works. Yeah, what when do we you, think, when you're folks, stopped. What are the chances that there will actually be a federal investigation into this? Make your smiling. Well, the chances are zero that it will happen as a result of a political <laughs> candidate demanding one. But, you know, if there ends up being more uh, smoke that leads to some kind of fire, perhaps. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong or illegal. You could debate whether it's wrong or not. There's nothing illegal about Ricky Hennon getting paid to serve as Willie Wilson's campaign uh, consultant or advisor. And to say we have the records, well, we all have the records. Those are publicly available on the Illinois State Board of Elections. Uh, But Ricky Hendon, a very colorful character. He's been around for a long time. Tina mentioned Simon, the state Senate. He's advised other political candidates before. Uh, He's, you know, I believe in various uh, cannabis enterprises. I mean, he is a uh, he's he's someone who seems to be never far from the issues we're talking about on your show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So we are done talking about the mayor's race for now. Uh, <laughs> but there are some lesser known races that are also on this February 28th ballot. Uh, let's take a look at the city's first ever police district councils. Mm-hmm. Jacoby, fill us in there. Uh, so we've got about 122 candidates looking to fill 66 vacancies on the Chicago's new police district councils. Each district council of the 22 in the city uh, will have three people elected. I believe not every single 
a district has three people running. Like who's who's eligible to run for one of these councils? Um, I believe you you have to like live in the neighborhood um, for a certain amount of time. You can't have any ties in the last few years to Chicago police, to COPA, uh, to other oversight bodies. But the type of people who, you know, we sat down with um, Jim Daly from the Chicago Reader, and he really broke it down for us. The type of people are running kind of run the gambit from teachers to people who are currently in politics to people who've been handpicked by uh, police uh, in their in their districts. And uh, I think a report came out this week that we're starting to see these two camps form on both sides. Mm-hmm. Right. And on one side, you have people who support um, abolitionist policies, who support defunding police, who, who fund alternative program. And then other people who staunchly believe that police are under attack. The truth is, I'm not shocked by this at all. In fact, I'm actually impressed by it that over the last few years, the abolitionist movement in our city has gotten so strong, so supportive, has organized with such veracity that they now stand at the point where news media organizations in our city say that they are on one side against another side that strongly supports police. Yeah. Now, obviously, there is more to be done to uh, because I would like to think I understand that defund the police has become such a, a charged term. But isn't that not what we want in our society to not need police as much to not like have to be, you know, have public safety be looked at in this like punitive way? Is that like not the desired end goal for our society that we don't need this type of oversight, this type of state violence? But I also understand that throughout most of our lifetime, by that, I mean, all of our lifetime police is what we know. Yeah. That that is where the public safety conversation starts and stops. And so. I'm interested to see how it evolves moving forward. Yeah. So if someone has a complaint about an officer, would they go to this council in the future? There are a few oversight bodies. And right now it is not very clear if the police district councils will be like the uh, like the number one interface if you have a complaint. But they will be required to hold these like monthly Uh, public meetings that you can go to where essentially when you give comment, you can bring up complaints and then they will report back to the police commission who ultimately then has its own responsibilities in relation to the other, I don't know, 10 or 11 so-called oversight bodies um, throughout our city. Well, Jacoby, let's stick with police accountability for just another moment. A a jury is awarded a former Chicago police detective $910,000 What are the details of Isaac Lambert's lawsuit against the the city and CBD? Yeah. Isaac Lambert argued that he was demoted and I believe ultimately fired because he chose not to participate in what he says was a cover up of a police officer shooting and injuring an unarmed young man living with autism. Um, And as records started to come out, as video started to come out, the original uh, story that were being told by police didn't match up. And so Lambert. Uh, ultimately says that he was in many ways blackballed. Now, you know, I, I understand that people may not be willing to hear one person's account, but let's be real. This this is not new. This this sort of code of silence that exists inside of law enforcement, which again comes b- back to why increased scrutiny, accountability, having people inside the community make, mm-hmm. you know, have informed decision-making power over the police is so important because we know, and as Jim Daly said when I last spoke to him, Arguably the biggest thing standing in the face of, you know, police reform, and I, and, I, and I use air quotes there, is is this code of silence, is 
police officers inside of the department, knowing that speaking out, that being a whistleblower uh, is ultimately likely to cost you your position and your mm-hmm. rank. And um, I, I can't imagine that that is a uh, conducive space for, you know, like openly calling out people's, you know, negligent and violent behaviors. Yeah. We'll make a- another quick story here involving police accountability calls for a review of how CPD handled an investigation into uh, an officer's alleged involvement with the right wing Proud Boys. That's right. Um, officer Robert Baker, um, who uh, was found to have uh, essentially been flirting with the Proud Boys. He said he was never a member, but I think he attended an event. He was engaging uh, with this group. Um, and, and I think most importantly for this story, honestly, he when he was confronted about it by authorities, he lied about it. He gave shifting accounts. Um, and yet at the end of the process, I think there was a mediation that ended up resolving it at the end. But he ended up with 120 days suspension. And so um, you have a number of people, including Alderman uh, Byron Sigjo Lopez, who are saying this is just unacceptable. We cannot have people on the force, uh, first of all, associating with right-wing uh, white supremacist groups, clearly, but then to go ahead and lie about it, um, that, that just makes it all that much worse. Jacoby, um, your thoughts on whether this case raises bigger issues? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, you know, something I learned growing up in a black household was that the reason the Ku Klux Klan wore masks is not just because it was a, a symbol. It was because it hid the face of politicians and lawmakers and people who sat on the city council in states and cities across America and police officers. And so what we're seeing now is a legacy of white supremacy existing inside police. Some would argue that the lineage of policing in America is one that follows the white supremacist route back. And so I'm not shocked. And I'm I'm very much disgusted by this attempt to just kind of push it off and, mm-hmm. and, and blow it off. You know, people didn't storm the Capitol simply because they had the power to, and, the, and the willpower to do it. No, it's because people stepped out the way in some cases. And they're blaming other people by saying that they're not a hate group, as mm-hmm. identified by the FBI, which is kind of an interesting slash scary dynamic there. Um, just putting it on the FBI to be like, hey, classify these people and we'll investigate this differently. Mm-hmm. But pretty much, you know, having a proud boy... Cop in CPD is not something that I think people want to see. Yeah. Of course not. One last law enforcement story. The Cook County State's Attorney's Conviction Integrity Chief is uh, being accused of the kind of misconduct she's supposed to be keeping an eye on. Mick, first, explain what the Conviction Integrity Chief's job actually is. Yeah, this is a crazy story um, and really uh, well put together by your colleague Chip Mitchell. Got to give a shout out to him. But I think First of all, the backdrop to this story, uh, if we're going to understand what's going on, is that for years, Cook County was known as the wrongful conviction capital of the United States. And so um, when, by the time you had Kim Fox get elected, she's in her second term now, um, one of her key promises uh, as she was elected as a progressive reformer coming into the prosecutor's office, one of her key promises was uh, to not only end the practice of these shoddy Uh, prosecutions and convictions, but to review a number of these old cases that have been in the system for so long and people have been uh, locked up. So the Conviction Integrity Unit, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to look at these old cases. Um, What Chip has uh, reported on is that the head of the the Conviction Integrity Unit currently with the state's attorney's office herself is embroiled in a very messy, complicated a series of cases 
that stem from the murder of a Chicago police officer, Clifton Lewis, more than 10 years ago. A number of people who have been implicated in this horrific crime um, are are challenging their convictions and basically saying they're not the right people and uh, CPD uh, engaged in you know shoddy investigation and whatnot. Where this ties back to the state's attorney's office and the conviction integrity unit mm-hmm. is that the head of that was one of the prosecutors in um, at least one of these cases, maybe a couple of the cases. And there are questions about whether they disclosed all of the evidence that was collected to the defense. Um, so this gets into a lot of... Uh, raises a lot of legal issues. It can get into the weeds pretty fast. But the bottom line is that um, in order to have faith that uh, not only ongoing convictions are sound, but that the review of past convictions are sound, you know, there needs to be someone with some distance yeah. from from those cases initially, and that's not what's going on now. And a uh, quick update from you, Tina, because in Springfield, they're dealing with the uh, assault weapons ban this week, right? Right, right. So there were two hearings this week. Um, they're all in Chicago. There was one on Monday and one um, yesterday. There's another one on Tuesday. It's just an opportunity for legislators to hear testimony. Um, you've mainly it's been it was four hours yesterday. It was very long. Oh, um, but there was only one pro gun person. Um, a couple of uh, someone who questioned the constitutionality of it, and then also someone who just said they did not believe an assault weapons ban would have prevented something like the Highland Park shooting. The massacre, and he was also there. So it was interesting to hear this perspective. Um, he was uh, questioned by a Democratic legislator in a back and forth, um, and a Republican, the Republican leader elect said, "You know, we got to hear these voices. We got to hear this dissent." So it was a little bit of a, a flicker of, of dissent that we're going to see as Democrats try to pass this in January. All right. In other news, non-tenured faculty at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago have voted to unionize and workers at six area Starbucks, they're going on strike today. So, Jacoby, the union movement just keeps growing. Yeah, it seems that we're in a, a really interesting place because for generations we've watched as labor unions have been stripped of power. Uh, have been intimidated out of collective bargaining. And I think Chicago deserves an extra amount of praise because I think this momentum stems from the collective action we've seen in uprisings in years past, whether it was after the the murder of Laquan McDonald, if it was the uprisings of 2020. I think we as a society are realizing that we are stronger together. And so they voted overwhelmingly, 377 uh, to 33 in favor of joining the union. And, you know, Starbucks around the country have been organizing. They had a huge Huge march in November mm-hmm. and the march that started or the strikes that started today across the country is just an additional solidarity move. I think Starbucks has been brought up on something like 900 violations of federal labor laws and they have you know, been uh, alleged to intimidate workers out of forming unions, sending high level executives to local Starbucks to have non-union meetings. And then ultimately we saw Starbucks in Edgewater after deciding to unionize being closed. And, and I said something earlier today on the show that for a symbol as strong as Starbucks, something that in Chicago we joke about, that if a Starbucks pops up in your community, gentrification might not be far behind it. For something to hold that much power in our collective language, it needs to be held accountable. And so whether we're talking about uh, you know, non-tenure tra- track teachers coming together at the Art Institute. We mm-hmm. just saw a few weeks ago city college adjuncts avoid going we on did. strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, by using that collective organizing, you know, I know that people are constantly hearing anti-union messages. Oh, it can raise taxes here. Oh, CTU might go on strike and our kids will be out of school. I get it. 
But that doesn't mean that, you know, where people feel as if they are not getting what they need or they're not being dignified, whether that's a school or whether that's El Milagro workers in Little Village. Yeah, uh, they deserve the right to organize with one another for better wages, for better conditions. I want to turn to a sad story with you, Jacoby. That's a homeless man named Joseph Cromelis, commonly known to Chicagoans as the walking man. He was often seen walking around downtown, but he died this week. Um, for those who aren't familiar with his story, though, can you just remind us who the walking man was and, and how his life came to an end? Uh, he was a, a figure in Chicago almost as common as the State Street preacher, right? People remember seeing his the mustache. State Street preacher. Come on, buddy didn't yes. tell everybody that they're not getting into the pearly gates. We're all so in one yeah. point, have you been down if there? It's, if it's not your drinking, it's your foul mouth. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. so Cromelis was not as antagonizing a figure, but someone that people, you know, say, you know, they can remember fondly. And unfortunately, he had been the victim of uh, uh, an attack where he was beaten by somebody wielding a bat a few years ago. Uh, then earlier this year, a man doused him in gasoline and, and set him on fire. And he had been hospitalized ever since. And he had been hospitalized ever since. And that individual was charged with arson and attempted murder. I imagine after a coroner's report, after an investigation is done, that those charges may change. But. I mean, it's been a disgusting story that we've been following all year, and it's extremely heartbreaking because it's a reminder that in our society there is a strong contingency of people who don't believe that the unhoused deserve to live in respect and dignity, that people who are maneuvering through precarity and disinvestment or or, or mental uh, you know, health struggles, that they don't deserve to be heard, they don't deserve to be seen. If we invested more money in, you know, making sure that the unhoused had somewhere to go, that people who had struggles had someone to talk to and where mm-hmm. to go. I'm not putting this, you know, all on the city because an individual made the choice to commit, you know, that horrific act. But if we took better care of each other, he might not have been sleeping out there that night. Yeah, we should also remember this tragic story is not at all isolated to Chicago, yep. right? Uh, we've got other American cities that have also experienced violence against the homeless mm-hmm. In March, a man uh, targeted and killed several homeless people in New York City, as well as uh, in Washington, D.C. So, I mean, this is a problem everywhere Mm -hmm. that really just needs to end. Um, I do want to turn to news about a person who is doing something to help the homeless, though. Uh, Over the last year, Andy Robledo, he's been handing out these free orange tents uh, to homeless people, but he was running into some problems with the city. We had him on the program here as well. Uh, Share the details with us, Mick. Mick? Yeah, I mean, essentially the city was uh, putting notices um, around some of these encampments and everybody who lives here has seen them. They're all over the city. They've exploded. I mean, the backdrop of the walking man uh, tragedy, that just act of cruelty is just simply the fact that there are more people living on the streets. Mm -hmm. I don't know about all of you, but I've just never seen homelessness in Chicago this visible before. Um, Just walking even downtown uh, during rush hour, you... Uh, you see people sleeping in doorways. So, um, and, and yes, it's it's not unique to Chicago, but um, it's happening right before our eyes. And um, Andy uh, has based, has you know come down pretty hard in the city. He's essentially issued a challenge to them. He said um, that the city could solve the problem here with a snap of a finger. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm myself not sure it's quite that simple, but his point is well made that where there's a will, there's a way. So um, he didn't feel that the city has mm-hmm. taken enough action on this. Um, uh, you know, and he also was alluding to the aforementioned Chicago housing authority. They're sitting on a, a number of empty units. 
Uh, they haven't built the housing that they promised. And so his basically way to challenge them was not just to complain about it and criticize, but to start buying tents and passing them out to people. So uh, these, these ice fishing tents, that these are ice, better yeah, exactly. Cold. Like yeah. The, where people can actually, uh, I'm not saying it's comfortable during the winter, but it's a lot better than being exposed to yeah. the open elements, right? I also hope the the homeless shelters are prepared to to receive more people, yeah. especially in the coming days. Right? Our With producer Samal Alisea went out to Humble Park last Saturday and met up Robledo while volunteers were out there constructing the tents, and we're going to be covering that on Monday on City Cash Chicago, right. so people can check in to WBZ to hear his story and. Also, you know, maybe come over to a little CCC, you know, 15 minutes and, and hear about it. CCC. I love that. <laughs> why, why have I never thought of that before? That's because it's City Colleges of Chicago, so it's already taken. Oh, that's taken. true. That's it's true. Taken. It's taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can only use that here on the weekly news recap. <laughs> uh, so, all right, switching gears. He's a self-proclaimed free speech warrior, but Elon Musk is coming under a lot of fire. He's suspending several journalists. That's all I was seeing on my Twitter feed last night. I don't know about you, but he's suspending a lot of journalists from Twitter. What do you guys think about this? Some of my reporter friends were like, okay, this is the end, right? What do we do? Like, can do we, we say jump? anything at can this point? Can we say anything? Do we jump ship? What do we do? People are already, you know, joining other social media accounts, Mastodon, uh, a bunch of other ones. So th- it is scary. I did read this morning that he did do some sort of Twitter chat with some reporters, and they asked him a bunch of questions, and he was unable to answer any of the questions and hopped off. So he's not really explaining his behavior of why he suspended these accounts. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was on a Twitter spaces. And I think a couple of people have like they recorded the Twitter spaces. And I think that's all that's left because it's it's suddenly disappeared mm-hmm. oh, off yes. of off of the Twitter sphere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you think? No one's shocked. I mean, a, a person who is out for that much power, dog whistling about wanting to control Twitter so that they can have free speech and they can protect free speech is the kind of person who probably is going to infringe and ultimately restrict other people's free speech because this entire cancel culture like rhetoric honestly is mostly being mobilized by people who don't want to be held accountable for the things that they say and the things they promote Mm -hmm. and and flies in the face of people who have had to just sit back for generations on generations and take what's being said to them. People like the, in the trans community, right? Journalists, you know, black and brown organizers, women. And, and so to see Elon Musk try to be the champion of free speech, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it, rings false right on its face and and his actions just kind of keep showing it yeah and the the irony after twitter supposedly released released all this supposed evidence um about how uh under the previous regime twitter was biased against trump and the republicans and all this there's been you know all kinds of uh what appears to me pseudo reporting uh about this information you know basically trying to perpetrate a narrative that um under the previous leadership, Twitter was biased against uh, people on the right. And and then he comes out and starts to ban knockoff journalists who, uh, well, hopefully not literally knocking them off, but knocking them off Twitter, uh, you know, who have dared to ask questions and point out discrepancies in, yeah. in this logic. How dare we? We were having discussion this morning in our team meeting here at WBEZ about, you know, journalists not ditching um their handles, like keeping your handles and making sure that those handles can't be scooped up by trolls and later get verified. Mm-hmm. Anybody else having thoughts about that? I haven't jumped to Mastodon. I haven't created an account yet. But. I haven't yet. I'm thinking about it. I did take a picture of my blue check mark just in case that goes <laughs> away to have it as my background photo. I do know a, a journalist that I used to work with in Toronto and she was 
uh, posting earlier this week about her checkmark having turned to orange. As she's a business now. <laughs> so Interesting. She's like, I don't know what happened they, there. It, they have I just quantified. host a show. <laughs> I don't know. Mine says I'm a legacy verified account. So prior to the Elon days, we're called the legacy account. (laughs) We'll have to leave it there for the the weekly news recap. My thanks to Tina Svondelis, chief political reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, ProPublica reporter McDumkey, and Jacoby Cochran, host of CityCast Chicago, a daily podcast and newsletter. We appreciate you guys. Taking the time to join Thank us, mm-hmm. braving the cold. Check on your so-called strong friends, y'all. Everybody needs somebody to check in on them, all right? Yes. Make sure you, not only because it's cold outside, but you never know what people are going through, right? Just pick Love up the phone, message. send a message. Yeah, something. thank you. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrea Guffman, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather. Make sure that you never miss a recap by subscribing to our podcast. We'll have a fresh panel of journalists next week who will get you up to speed on everything that you need to know. All right, that's it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.